The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Luke chapter 9 verses 46 through 62. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to all my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Jim. You heard the reading, heard the reading from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, over the next three years, as we continue in our efforts of renewal, asking God to renew us, we'll be preaching back and forth from Deuteronomy to Luke with a goal of finishing both the books. We may take us a little beyond the renew time. And then in October, we'll have a season of remembering the anniversaries of our renew efforts and looking at the back half of Isaiah. And then we'll do Advent each year as well. So that's what's ahead of us for the next three years in God's Word. We finished the first sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy, so it's quite fitting that we break now and look to this turning point in Luke's gospel, as we'll see in a moment. Let's pray. Our Father, you heard us sing that we are poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And we're very glad that you stand ready to save sinners. We're also very glad that you stand ready to speak 
of sinners who, by your Spirit, you've given the ability to hear. We need to hear from you. So by your Spirit and through your Word, we ask you to speak. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our last time in Luke, verse 44 was one of the last verses we heard. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then our passage this morning has the hinge of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51. Just one-third of the way into Luke's gospel, and the shadow of the cross falls heavy across the page, and will be there for the remainder. In verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. To set one's face means to go somewhere with determination to accomplish a task. As he sets his face to Jerusalem and the cross, surely on his mind are those he came to save, us. So he has said the Son of Man has come to be betrayed and now he sets his face to the cross And what might be the response of his followers to verse 44 and verse 51? Well, as Jesus speaks his words of passion, they are absorbed with their prestige. How quickly we see in this text how we can move from believing and receiving the grace-filled sacrifice from Jesus to a graceless self-centeredness. The disciples are asking, who is the greatest? And he has said, he is going to suffer. And they are concerned about their seat. As the disciples will journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, they clearly have much to learn. And so do we. How quickly we move from sacrifice as the way to status, from the cross to comfort. We need to learn from Jesus on the way And we will as we go in this passage. The first thing we see is that faithfully following Jesus leads you to certain places. Following him means he's taking you places. He's taking you with intention somewhere. And the first of those things is that he is taking us to a proper understanding of greatness resulting in humble service. He will get that through to our hearts. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. How ironic. A bunch of nobodies until Jesus came their way. And now they're arguing about who's the greatest somebody. 
who's the greatest means who has the most authority, who has the most preferable treatment, who has the most value, who has the most favor. They ask that in the face of the cross. Verse 47 says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. In Jewish culture, Children were the least significant individuals. The Talmud, the ancient teachings of the rabbis, regarded spending time with children to be a complete waste of time. If you remember on another occasion, the disciples, based on this cultural assumption, considered Jesus far too important to receive children, and so they tried to send the children away. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus here is not saying that his disciples will find God by being nice to kids. That's not the way to salvation. But he is saying that how they relate to a child, the least, the lowest, how they relate to the insignificant in the world's eyes, will indicate whether they have received him or not. Jesus, as you follow him, will lead you to a proper understanding of greatness resulting in humble service. Jesus' followers are those who, because we understand we are the least, feel at home with those the world call the least. The poor the disenfranchised, the little, the lowly. See, what is to mark God's people is a humble service of others, not a competitive comparison of pride. Jesus will teach us this. And then the scene really adds on to their question of who's the greatest, because in verse 49, John comes and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and good news, Jesus, we tried to stop him, because he doesn't follow with us. I think this is rooted in a little bit of insecurity, to be honest. If you remember in verse 40 of the same chapter, when they came off the mountain, We begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. We're not going to let somebody do something we failed to do in Jesus' name that's not among us. So they come with their prideful intervention before Jesus and say, guess what, Jesus? No problem. We got it. We intervened. It's the same sin as the debate over the greatness It's the sin of self-importance. Jesus responds to them with a stern prohibition and principle. And he says this, 
First, very clearly, the prohibition. Do not stop him. Why? Whoever is not against you is for you. See, that principle is really important to the disciples if they are to understand greatness and engage in humble service. The sons of thunder, as it were, in Mark 3, of course, are bringing the thunder. They are eager to defend the master's honor. They'll do this later in the book of Luke in chapter 22. And when those who were around them saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I'd like to tell you what Jesus is pointing out here to the disciples and to us. It's very possible to have zeal for God and lack wisdom, truth, and obedience. It's actually one of the greatest problems in the church, to be quite frank. A zeal without wisdom, humility, truth, and obedience. The warning is this, you may hold of a right insight for the honor of Jesus' name, and yet you wrongly inject it or you wrongly apply it to certain circumstances. And I think what Jesus here is saying about the kingdom and the work of this one who's doing the work of Jesus in his name, and they think, well, he's not part of our little elite circle. I think Jesus would say to us that ecclesiastical snobbery and arrogance is a vice to Jesus and worthy of his rebuke. We are too factional among people who share the name of Jesus with us. J.C. Ryle, this is in our small group discussion questions this week online. You can find it there. I named my fourth child after J.C. Ryle, Simeon Ryle Salter. Poor kid can't say his R's. J.C. Ryle says this, it's possible to have much zeal for Christ and yet to exhibit it in the most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to fancy that we have scripture on our side and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. It is as clear as daylight from this and other cases related in the Bible that it is not enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. From no quarter, perhaps, has the church received so much injury as from ignorant and well-meaning followers of Jesus. That's what's happening in this passage. They're stopping somebody who's doing the work of the kingdom in the name of Jesus because they have too much self-importance. To follow Jesus, we will understand true greatness and we will respond with humble service. But then you get a correction And you'll see that faithfully following Jesus leads to a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus Christ. In verses 51 through 53, as I said, verse 51's the hinge. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And as he sets his face to Jerusalem, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
All right, so Jesus has his face set to Jerusalem. The quickest route to Jerusalem from Capernaum is straight through Samaria. It wasn't a welcome route. That's why many people went around and went the Jericho Road into Jerusalem. But Jesus says, we're going right through Samaria. So he sends a band of his followers ahead to, to make preparations. And the Samaritans did not receive them. They rejected them. What's this all about? There was deep mutual animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It had existed for hundreds of years. The Jews considered the Samaritans a, a racial half-breed and religious apostates, and they hated them, and the Samaritans returned the favor. They hated them right back. For the Jews, Jerusalem was the destination of pilgrimage. For the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim. And for someone to come through their region heading to Jerusalem was an affront to their very belief system. And so they offered no help to anyone coming through Samaria to Jerusalem. Now, what's the response of the disciples to such treatment? Jesus, can we burn the village down? That's what they say. Jesus, would you allow us to incinerate them? When his disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, well-named, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's a, we'll get to why the, there's such an absurdity in that response and they fail to listen and believe Jesus. But they do know their Bibles. They do have some precedents for why they would react with such a question. If you remember in 2 Kings 1, the scene with Elijah, and they're following Jesus, this Elijah-like figure, Messiah, Elijah to come, has come. They, they think something big's happening. This is God's man. Well, in 2 Kings 1, King Ahaziah had twice sent 50 soldiers to capture Elijah, and twice Elijah responded by saying this, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And it did. And they're thinking, how about round three, Jesus? I mean, look, you don't mess with God's man. You don't, you don't host us and, and welcome us in Samaria. We'll burn your place down. They thought the right tactic to people who opposed them and Jesus was a burning, fiery judgment. Yet again, do you see? Their zeal for the honor of Jesus is misguided and potentially damaging. So verse 55 says that Jesus turned. I imagine them asking this question while he's walking ahead of them. <laughs> it's, it, I don't know if that happened, but Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down and we'll consume the whole village? And Jesus just rebukes them. He turns and rebukes them. Why, what, what could he possibly rebuke them with? Very easy. Verse five of chapter nine, he had just told them, if people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you have the, leave their town as a testimony against them. He did not say burn it down. 
They're uninterested in connecting with the way of Jesus, yet they have zeal for Jesus. And Jesus reminds them, surely maybe of Luke 6. He had taught, this is so clear, you don't need a seminary degree to understand this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, not burn. Pray for those who abused you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so Jesus' rebuke is because they have a zeal for him, but they don't really understand his truth and haven't actually received it deep enough in the heart to where it shapes their actions. Furthermore, don't forget that in verse 51, just before they asked to burn a village down, they forget Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem because it's time for me to be taken up. I'm going to lay my life down for people who oppose me, like you, disciples. They have honor and they have zeal for the Lord's honor, but they lack wisdom. They lack the heart, they lack the truth. We need a steady resolve in our mission as we hold out mercy to those who oppose Jesus. And what the church doesn't need and what Jesus rebuked is this. We do not need spiteful revenge towards those who stand against this mission. We need to be people marked by mercy. Do you have any friends in your life who oppose Jesus? If you do, would you ask them how they would describe their relationship with you? Ask them if it is one marked by mercy. And if you don't have friends that oppose Jesus, could I ask? I think it, or could I say, I think it's time to make some new friends. Because those people who oppose Jesus need mercy. Jesus says, that's our calling because today is the day of grace. Judgment's coming. It is not ours to give now. Instead of burn it, let's go in love. Following Jesus will take you there to a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus, but then it'll also give you clarity. Following Jesus will lead to clarity that this, there's an unwavering allegiance to Jesus in spite of discomfort and distractions. That's the nature of following Jesus, an unwavering allegiance despite all discomforts, difficulties, and distractions. And so you have this triad of well-intentioned inquirers who don't fully realize the nature of discipleship and the demands of the kingdom. I'd like to point out as well how often this has happened in this section. Well-intentioned people misguided. John, we stopped him. James and John, let's burn it down. And now three people who think, I'd like to follow you, but they're misguided. The first is in 57 through 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, I believe Jesus understood that this man did not understand the wherever. I'll follow you wherever you go. Of course, there was probably a crowd around 
Jesus as he's walking and making his way and maybe this guy's like, hey, I'd like to join the party. Jesus quickly says, actually, this isn't a party. This actually isn't a tour either. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The one who made the foxes and the birds is homeless. He looks at this man who's a bit naive as he approaches Jesus and says, you might want to consider what you're saying when you say you'll follow me wherever I'll go. This is not a joyride. There's no lavish meals. There's no beautiful roof over our heads. We're actually all going to die. You see, Jesus would have made marketers really upset with him. (laughs) Jesus, this is not how you market yourself. Join the homeless journey. It's going to be great. But Jesus understood the nature of his call and that following him means unwavering allegiance in the spite of discomforts and difficulties. And then verse 59, another says, follow me. To another, he said, follow me. Now he's calling somebody, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems a little harsh, maybe at first glance. I I personally don't believe that this one who he called to follow him, I don't believe his father has actually died. Because if his father had actually died, he wouldn't have been present on the road. He would have been immediately burying his father. I believe what's happening is my father's close to death or near death. I'd like to stay until he dies so I can be present to bury him. And Jesus' response is, let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead do that. They can take care of your father. But if you're spiritually alive, I supersede all other loyalties. What Jesus points out to people as they come to follow him is this. Dale Ralph Davis said it. Watch out that your loyalties do not become idolatries. Jesus wanted this man to reckon with ultimate allegiance. I am not an add-on to your life, Jesus would say. I am not, if you enjoy deviled eggs... To me, the paprika makes very little difference. It's just as good without it. But for some of us, Jesus is nothing but paprika sprinkled on our lives. And Jesus confronts this man and says, that's not who I am. I'll lead you to an unwavering allegiance full of discomfort, difficulty, and distractions. And the last person comes, verses 61 through 62. He comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus essentially says, I don't add amendments to the contract. Follow me. No asterisks, no but first, no divided heart. His response is one that people in an agrarian society would have easily understood when he said, no one who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The person who puts his hand to the plow in that culture and starts plowing forward but then looks back and continues to do so cannot plow a straight furrow 
to plow in one direction and look in the other will not work. And that is not the nature of the kingdom of Jesus. He says, I will lead you into unwavering allegiance. Following Jesus with conditions attached is not discipleship. The call of Christ lays bare whether we are devoted to God's kingdom or whether we are split in our allegiance. So he will lead us away from our fickle, half-hearted following of him. And it'll hurt. Because we don't let go of our gods easily. So Jesus is showing, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm taking you to a right definition of greatness that'll be embodied with humble service. I'm taking you to be a people of mercy towards those who oppose Jesus. I'm taking you to an unwavering allegiance full of difficulty, discomfort, distractions, where I ask for your loyalty. And that is good news. This week, there's been many stories in honor of Queen Elizabeth. But my friend Robert Cunningham in Lexington, Kentucky, a fellow pastor, shared one. And he said, I think I have one that tops them all. (laughs) He had the honor, my friend Robert had the honor of touring the UK Parliament with a man who knew its history better than anyone. And Robert pulled that man aside at the Parliament and said, all right. I'd like you to tell me the craziest story you can share that's not part of the tour. And Robert said, he did not disappoint me. He goes on to share that every legislative session begins with a visit from the queen. A very regal tradition, she wears the crown, the robe. She processes down a hallway line with the queen's guards who literally strike the stone walls with their swords to make sparks fly as she walks by. The hallway ends at the House of Lords, where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. And several years ago, they were forced to break tradition a bit to accommodate the queen in her older age. There was that grand staircase leading to the hallway, and it became too much for the queen to climb. And so they decided to start using the elevator to get her to the proper floor. Well, the first year they did that, a mistake was made. The lift operator accidentally pushed the wrong button and took them to the maintenance floor. The lift gate opened. It goes up, the doors open. And Alice from the cleaning crew with her head down, pushes the cleaning cart into the elevator as she has done countless times, only this time she has pinned the Queen of England against the wall. (laughs) The doors close behind her. Alice looks up, sees the Queen and her guard, lets out an expletive not fit for the presence of royalty, and awkward silence ensues. And it is broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. And then the most remarkable invitation. Rather than opening the doors to let Alice off, 
the queen asks the lift operator to take them to the proper floor. And the doors open and to everyone's shock, out walks her majesty, the queen, and Alice, the maintenance worker. The queen in her regalia, along with Alice in her maintenance uniform, processing side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets even better. Once a year, for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her newfound friend, Queen Elizabeth. See, that story embodies where Jesus is taking us. Don't think too highly of yourself. Find yourself at home with the Alice's in our world. Serve. Be merciful. Even bring the world uncontrollable laughter because we know who we really are. A proper understanding of your greatness will lead to a life of humility, mercy, and clarity for one who reigns far above us. Let's pray. Father, convince us that we're Alice. We're the least of these. But you've made us something. Give us Alice's in our life to humbly serve, to show mercy, to share uncontrollable laughter and tea together. I'm confident that's why you came. That's why you left the Spirit. That's what you've asked of the church. And sadly, we would rather behave with the sin of self-importance far too often. Our zeal without wisdom and truth is, is hurting your mission. Help us hear this text by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.